Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, folks. I just want to take a minute to ask you to go and rate this podcast. Uh, let the team house know how you think we're doing Go and rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this on, whether it's iTunes or Spotify or whatever else. Uh, Those ratings really help us out, and we really appreciate the feedback to let us know what you like and what you don't like. And uh, if you do like the Team House and you'd like to support us, go check out our Patreon page, and you can actually support the stream as well as get access to our bonus segments and bonus episodes. Yeah, if, if you're going to give us a great review, please do. And if you're going to give us a not-so-good review, why don't you just send us an email and we'll talk about it. <laughs> Special Operations. Covert Ops. Espionage. The Team House. With your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, this is episode 189 of the Team House. I'm Jack Murphy here with David Park. Our guest on tonight's show is Mark Denbaugh. Mark is a civil rights lawyer. He's been uh, working civil rights cases since the 1960s up until today. Uh, Also teaches law and uh, worked on some important national security cases as well, including representing inmates down at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, So we're going to get into all of that and more uh, on this show with Mark. So uh, thank you for joining us tonight. So kick it off, Mark. Tell us about how you how you got into law and how you got into civil rights specifically. From college, the Vietnam War was going on. And just about everybody of my generation didn't really want to be marching through rice paddies with strangers trying to kill them. And so my generation was trying to avoid the draft. Going on to school was a solution. I wasn't sure where to go, but I knew I had to go to school. And in my senior year in college, I got involved with a variety of things, starting with the March on Washington. And I got involved in some various demonstrations. And I ended up going to Selma, Alabama for the final and not dangerous, or at least it was not violent, march. And after that was over, I decided I was definitely going to go to law school seems something that could actually be make a difference. I went to NYU Law School. As I was coming out of law school, I wasn't quite sure how you could find a law career that was interesting. And at that time, LBJ had set up the uh, poverty program. And he set up civil, civil legal services offices in basically ghettos around the country. And I was employed in the South Bronx for right as soon as I left law school. And what was the conditions of the South Bronx when you landed there? Well, it was nothing, it was like nothing I had ever seen. But in the other hand, it wasn't so dramatically gruesome as people might have imagined. It was just a really poor, uh, unhappy people with people sitting around, not much going on. And uh, there were obviously issues 
but I was there during the daytime when I was working as a lawyer. The nighttime, I think, was a more violent place. Uh, but I ended up being the, the kind of poverty law you'd represent welfare recipients who they were trying to kick off welfare mm -hmm. for various reasons. Um, I was certainly involved in family issues, child custody issues, but ultimately the core of our practice was landlord-tenant court and keeping tenants from being evicted. And I spent two years doing that. And uh, the real problem there was the housing sucked. And uh, we were able to find a way. Landlords would want to evict people who couldn't pay money. And in our first winter, we realized that they couldn't pay the money, often because they had spent so much money on using the gas oven, the range for whatever it would be to heat them, and they didn't have the money. And for me, the moment that changed a lot of things was when I went to court and a judge said, well, do you have the money? And I said, no. He said, well, then you have to be evicted. And I said, well, actually, the reason we don't have the money is because of the uninhabitable nature of the place. And the judge says, I'm not sure that's a legal theory. And I said, I will prove it. And he adjourned the case. And it kind of interesting because it was hard to prove that. And the next time a case was brought in, I went in and I got in some trouble because I said, this court is nothing but a bank for the landlord. You come in, they come here, you take the money, you hold the money until you give it to the landlord or the tenant moves out. All they did was make the place even more uninhabitable. People would move out and take the money. Um, but um, uh, the dramatic part of that practice for us was my colleagues and I discovered that ten, there were no, the one essential requirement of any lawsuit is there has to be jurisdiction over the party. Well, that requires serving them. Well, it turned out they weren't serving anybody. We used to have what's called sewer service. You mail them a letter or not, and then throw the original off someplace. And it occurred to us that we have a right to make them prove that they had jurisdiction. So we would come into court and say, we don't believe they were served properly, bring in the process server. And of course the process servers were getting paid $2 a time to do it. And, uh, and they were doing it all over the city and so what ended up happening was we would bring them into court and the process server, after a while, we got very good at it. We could interrogate them, cross-examine them for a long time, fill up most of a court day. And there'd be 300 cases there. And whoever got the first case would start asking how many steps we want to make sure you've been to the building. What's how many steps? Are there steps to the building? Are they stone? What color is the door? When you go in, where's the elevator? And they, of course, knew nothing about the building because they'd never been there. And so we can end up proving they'd never been in the building, never gone up to it. They didn't know what floor the apartment was. And ultimately, we could take one landlord-tenant case and only try whether they'd been served. And then if we lost the service, then they'd set it down for trial. And we got to be so good that we could take 11 months resisting a landlord-tenant case by proving they hadn't been served. And then the clients would say, what should I do now? And I said, well, keep the money and uh, they'll start all over again. So we ended up managing to be able to get people some money by hook or by crook, and that's what it was. And it was it was very interesting experience dealing with 
a lot of welfare mothers in cold weather sitting in the rooms with their kids, the courtroom. It was, it was remarkable. You're telling and, me that uh, over time, the two years that you were there, you became quite angry and frustrated with the just quote unquote justice system. Yeah, um, what you're right. What got me realizing that was I didn't realize it. My wife did. My wife said to me, I didn't marry an angry man. We were gotten married quite young. Um, and uh, she said, and we had a little baby. And she kept saying, I didn't marry an angry man. And I said, well, I'm not an angry man. And then she said, well, what do you think of the judges? What do you think of the landlords? What do you think of the landlord's lawyers? What do you think of your fellow workers? Are they doing, doing as much as they could? And by the time I got done pointing out the failures of every part of the system, from the judges to the process servers, to the landlords, to the landlord's lawyers, my wife looked at me and I realized that I really was just mad at everything. I still insist I was totally rightly mad at them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did seem a little unfair to come home every night with a little baby and fuming away. So eventually, I moved. I decided to go into law school teaching, and I joined the faculty at Seton Hall Law School in 1972. And, and I retired from there a year and a half ago. Now I'm an emeritus professor. So, it, in between, you know part A and part B, you know, these various phases of your life. Um, you were telling me that one of the things that you have uh, testified on is sort of pseudoscience in the courts, the, the introduction of pseudosciences. And I think a lot of us now have seen uh, like sort of true crime documentaries and seen these quote unquote expert testimonies where I remember seeing one where they brought in a hand bite ex or a, a, a bite expert. And yep, yep. They, were, they were showing how the, um, you know, what the guy was doing was he was rolling the dentures on the on the skin to like and the skin has elasticity. So like the, he can make the bite mark fit the the you know, the mark on the skin. Right. So we have a quote unquote match. Um, but you, you went real deep into the subject and I'd, I'd love to hear your experience. Well, the bite mark is interesting. I mean, I think that um, um, one of the problems with all pseudoscience is, is it testable? You know, if you can't find, determine whether somebody knows how to do it or not, or is good at it or not, then of course they have nothing really to offer. But one of the problems with bite marks was they couldn't figure out a way to test it. How many people are gonna come in and say, bite my arm, bite my arm, bite my arm, and then have a lineup and figure out which teeth went which, which they couldn't do it. So they'd come on and say, oh, I can tell. Well, I got involved with handwriting because I was, approached by a private investigator, a friend of mine who would refer me cases that were interesting, but didn't have any um, ability to pay. And I'm being a law professor with a salary that wasn't the same problem. And he was somebody who worked in the New York City Job Corps. And two years earlier, the city had concluded that somebody had been forging some of the checks. Mm -hmm. And they went through and assumed that he did it. I don't know how they managed to do that. So I was brought in to represent him. By this time, he was a freshman in Brooklyn College, doing very well, and um, was a very impressive kid. And uh, so I went to talk to the prosecutor. And I said, you know, we didn't do it. The prosecutor said, well, that's fine. We'll have a trial. But we need a handwriting exemplar in order to determine 
whether or not um, he wrote this. So I said, okay, I know you have a right to it. How are you going to do it? He said, well, have him write this down and we'll have our guy compare it. And I said, well, that sounds really sucky. You, your handwriting guy is a cop. He works for you. He's got the question document. You want my client to write a document and you're going to ask the cop who works for you, is this the same guy or different? <laughs> and he said, well, how do you want to do it? I said, the same way we do with lineups. Let's have a lineup, not a show up. You don't show one witness, one person and say, is this the one? You give them a range to choose from. So we ended up, as that went through, um, uh, I came up, I said, look, he's about the age of my law students. I'll have five law students write out the same, whatever you want me to write. He'll write one. We'll number them, staple them together and see if your guy can tell who wrote it. And I thought, you know, there's some, I didn't really think much of it. I just seemed like something worth trying. Nothing happened. Four months later, the guy calls up and he said, well, my guy refuses to take the test. And I said, why? And he said, because he's afraid he'll fail it. And if he fails it, he won't be allowed to testify as a handwriting expert anymore. I said, well, how likely is he to fail it? The guy said, I don't know, but he's pretty scared. <laughs> so um, um, I said, well, we're not dropping. Why don't you drop the case then? He said, I can't. He said, I'll get back to you. Eight months later, he calls up. He said, what are we going to do with this case? And I said, you're going to drop it. And uh, he said, I can't drop it. What about a lesser included offense? I said, this is the lowest possible offense. It's a low, low offense. You can't go lower than this. You can't offer me anything. So why don't you drop the case? And by this time, he and I developed a bit of a relationship. And I said, I can't do that. He got back to me another eight months later. He said, okay, I'm going to the U.S. Attorney's Office to be an assistant U.S. Attorney. What are we going to do with this case? And I said, why don't you drop it? He said, okay, and dropped it. That story made me say, well, wait a minute. I would have believed these guys would have no problem picking out from a range of people who was the guilt, whose handwriting it was. The fact that he couldn't and he thought he might not be able to, in a way that was significant, let a colleague of mine, Michael Reisinger, teaches evidence as I did, to start doing, seeing about testing handwriting experts. And we found several handwriting associations, all of which we came to them and proposed the idea on the theory that they could then propose, show they could do it. And it, all that we spoke to, at least two, came back and said, no, we're not gonna take the test. We said, why? He said, well, because we already can testify, it won't make it easier for us to testify and it could make it harder. Right. You know, all we can do is fail this test. We can't pass it. You know, it was a jarring moment and it made me realize that there was something potentially weird here. So we decided to look into how it started and handwriting experts began not they were around before, but what made them handwriting experts was the Bruno Hauptmann prosecution for the Lindbergh kidnapping. Oh, wow. And they had a note, kidnap note. And it, and what happened was they couldn't figure out who wrote it, but they managed to pick up, arrest this guy, Hauptmann, for totally different reasons. And they made him do a handwriting 
exemplar. And they showed it to him. And then, and then they showed it to seven handwriting experts. <clears throat> and every one of them testified. <clears throat> we got the trial transcript, looked at it. And the significant thing about it was the handwriting question document spelled the word boat, B-O-A-D. The Hauptmann was a German immigrant. And he had had a partner who was a German immigrant. But when the handwriting people testified, they didn't talk about similarities of shapes of writings. It was a spelling test. Wow. So he spelled both the same way in the knowns as he wrote them out as the questions. And while the trial is going on, he says, it's on the record, they showed me the document and they told me to copy it. <laughs> oh, my God. I spoke to his wife, who was still alive at the time. And she said, I have trouble sleeping. I said, why? She said, well, every night I go to bed imagining what it's like for poor Richard to know he was innocent and being executed. I said, maybe I'd have trouble sleeping that way also. Anyway, it turned out they've never had a proficiency test. So what we ended up doing was trying to find these tests, do these things. And the net result was we hired or hired. Our co-author was a guy named Michael Sachs, a research methodologist and social scientist at BC. And Sachs then did some research and he found some proficiency tests would have been given by the Forensic Science Foundation. I don't know if I'm going too fast, no. but the French Forensic Science Foundation, and that was the proficiency testing arm of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences, which is purportedly a big deal. Uh, less impressive to me now that I've looked into more of their fields. But, um, and we had five tests in the 70s and 80s. And if you looked at their own results from their own tests, they varied some, they did better, some they did worse. If you looked at all of them, they were right 57% of the time and wrong 43. Flip of the coin. Right. And we wrote an article about that the University of Pennsylvania published and that made other lawyers suddenly want us to testify. And over the years, I testify about that a lot. And all jurors pay attention when you say they're right 57% of the time, wrong 43% of the time. And I often add in, and as a professor, that's a D. Mark, what do, you, what, what do you think then of uh, the other types of handwriting experts, the ones who say that you can read or infer into people's handwriting their personality based on, you know, the, 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 the techniques or whatever of their handwriting? Graphologists. First of all, I'll say this. Even the people who claim to be handwriting experts don't accept as credible the graphologists. Mm -hmm. So now you've sunk to a level below forensic document examiners. Um, I think there's something to it in the sense that one of the ways they used to diagnose whether people had various learning disabilities was the way they would write. And sometimes their, their, their fine motor skills weren't very good. Sometimes they would write invert letters. I mean, there were things that they used that for as tools to diagnose something. But they never did that in order to say, well, this person wrote it and that person wrote it. In fact, what ultimately got me really into this was my late wife. I came in and she was looking at the refrigerator and on the refrigerator was a note. It said, mom, dad, running late, 
for dinner. I'll be home at seven. It was unsigned. And my wife said, you know, I can't tell whether that's Josh, our oldest, or Abigail, our youngest. They're six years apart. And I'm looking at that saying, you know, actually handwriting experts have had this big advantage because it's sort of like swimming downstream. We all can tell some handwriting. You could tell your wife's handwriting. You could tell your mother's handwriting. You can make all sorts of distinctions because you've seen it. But you don't need a handwriting expert to explain the details of things that are obvious. You know, and what you really need is a handwriting expert to distinguish writing that's similar, meaning the difference between Josh and Abigail's writing. And if their own mother couldn't tell, I'd be very interested to see how a handwriting expert could tell. And of course they can't. So we've testified about this over and over. Uh, I got to give a quick shout out to our sponsors for tonight's show. Uh, our first one is Bub's Naturals. They're a health food company. They make a number of different products like uh, MCT powder. Uh, they make this stuff right here. This is, uh, it's actually flavorless protein. It doesn't have any sort of flavor to it. So you mix it in with coffee, water, soft drinks, whatever you want. Um, I've actually used this for years. It's a really good product. And uh, this is another one they make. Uh Apple cider vinegar gummies. These help with your vegetation. Uh, your digestion. Yeah, they're gummies. They're apple cider. They I've heard of gummies. Yeah. I didn't hear of that. <laughs> and uh, so the, the Bub's Naturals, they work with the Glenn Doherty Foundation. Uh, Glenn Doherty was one of the SEALs who, uh, he was a former SEAL turned CIA contractor, one of the guys who perished in Benghazi, Libya. And uh, so 10% of their profits go to uh, go to the Glenn Doherty Foundation, kind of keep Glenn's memory and legacy alive. Um, Glenn was a super good guy. We're really happy to work with Bubs. And if you go to bubsnaturals.com and use the promo code TEAMHOUSE, you get 20% off your order. So that's bubs, bubsnaturals.com, and the promo code is TEAMHOUSE to get 20% off your order. So it's Bubs Naturals. There's an S on it, right? Yep. Yes, sir. Bubs Naturals. Uh, and our second sponsor is Battling Blades. Uh, we love this company uh, for a number of reasons. We love their D&D dice, their tabletop gaming dice. But they also sell a wide variety of uh, swords, Where's our axes, knives, katanas, rapiers. Uh, uh, they sell great cosplay stuff, great tabletop gaming stuff. I mean, if you're looking for like a nice, if you're a collector or if you know somebody who is, of any type of blade, any historical, uh, you know, tomahawk, knife, anything like that, check out Battling Blades. They have amazing stuff. Um, if you have any problem with your delivery, they're happy to, you know, to uh, to to take it back. They, um, I, I, I can I can never pick the things that I like best. D, when are we getting those dice in? I think in a couple weeks. Nice. Uh, we have a katana from them right now. Jack took the well, katana home. Anyway, um, definitely if you're a collector, if you like blades of any type, they also have great cosplay stuff, LARPing stuff. You know, uh, Jack and I may look at some of their LARPing stuff for our. Uh, there you go, Dave. Nice. Very nice, very nice blades at Battling Blades. Um, you want to put this back so I don't cut myself? Uh, <laughs> um, so go go to Battling Blades. Use the code TEAMHOUSE for 20% off. That's TEAMHOUSE for 20% off at BattlingBlades.com. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, Mark, back to you. Sorry for the interruption. Oh, no problem. So I, before moving on from this topic, uh, the one other thing I wanted to ask you about briefly was um, you also mentioned that uh, there are other problems and other types of evidence. Um, one of the ones that you brought up that surprised me is fingerprints, which is like a time-tested, true, as we're to believe, you know, the FBI has like, they're like the renowned experts on fingerprints. But you said there's even problems in fingerprinting sometimes. For a while, it seemed to be there were really serious problems. Um, I think the problems are less significant now. But one of the problems with fingerprints is collection. You know, everybody thinks that how you collect a fingerprint may make a difference. Um, and, and, and it sometimes smudges, sometimes it gets compared differently, sometimes they get put in different places, which is also true with DNA, by the way. It's not that DNA doesn't work. It gets mis- miscategorized. Yeah, or really it's something similar with, with fingerprints. But fingerprints still work on sort of a statistical premise that there can't be any two alike. And of course, it's probably true, but it depends on how alike they mean it. But that was a very controversial issue around 2000. And a judge actually excluded fingerprints in Philadelphia. And the DOJ and the FBI were kind of beside themselves. Yeah, I bet. Anyway, there's Uh, a lot of stuff, but um, that's not the first one on the list. uh, Let's talk for a moment about how you came to represent members of the Black Panthers. Okay. Um, I'm not sure that a lot of the audience even knows what Black Panthers were because they're all either dead or or locked up now. But um, what happened was I was in Selma and in the South in the mid-60s. And when I went to law school, I came north. And one of the things that I realized was that, and that came about when I was in landlord-tenant court, and other places, because the there were no whites in the Bronx landlord tenant court, and was the problem of what is racism. And when I was in the South, it was scary. And there were lynches and stuff. I don't mean I was involved in that, but there was violence. Um, the first Selma demonstration was brutal. By the time our group came down, there were three thousand of us, and um, it was the press was there, and it wasn't that way. But it was very violent and ugly. And somebody has since told me this, that the problem was that the difference in racism then in the South was it's like the wolf at the door pounding away. And when you go North, it becomes the termites in the floor. You know, nobody's lynching you in the North. Nobody's doing that. Perhaps they're paying you less. You know, perhaps they are, in fact, um, um, giving you not such good jobs, harder to find housing, all sorts of things. Um, an example of it is that comes up, my wife, my, my wife's a sociologist. She said, you know, 
there are two things that are really significant. She teaches her students this. One is, if you look at the wealth your family has, we're talking about ordinary people when they retire, the biggest source of wealth is their home. And if you don't own a house, you haven't really, you've lost an opportunity to acquire a lot of wealth at retirement age. And the other source of income has been social security. And it turns out when social security was started in the thirties, social security was designed basically for people who were getting W-2 salaries. Mm -hmm. So anybody who was a maid or a servant or a, um, doing working around town, odd jobs, those people never got social security. And that actually, we know exactly the, who those people were, whether it's in St. Louis or New York or anywhere else. And it turned out a significant portion of the generation that started getting social security, that it almost exclusively was limited to whites. And that wasn't figured out for 20 years. So from 34 to 44 to 54, there were a whole lot of elderly people who weren't getting social security because they hadn't paid into it. And they also hadn't bought homes. And even when the GI Bill came out with money, the various redlining, it was very difficult for them to collect money. So that kind of racism is not like lynching, but it actually works out to have that same impact. And it's not an accident the way it works out. So that was one part of the, the sort of my getting up to represent the Black Panthers. Because the Black Panthers were the ones, by the way, there were very significant lawyers representing Black Panthers in very significant cases. I was not one of them, so I don't want to misunderstand my role. I was a very young lawyer in those years. But I did deal with them and have some clients. And um, some sad stories. And um, so I was. they were very good about that. People don't understand the thing that made the Black Panthers most powerful was the hot breakfast program. Mm -hmm. They set up a hot breakfast program in the ghettos. All the kids would come and start with a hot breakfast. They would provide it. And that was very upsetting to establishment people because they were becoming providing a service that was appreciated and valuable and useful. And so when they would go ahead and do that, that led to another, another reason why the Black Panthers were a, a problem for people. Obviously, they also carried guns. Um, Ronald Reagan passed a gun law prohibiting rifles being carried in the streets because Black Panthers were carrying them. Um, there are all sorts of things like that. So anyway, I represented them and um, some of their landlord tenants, some I did some minor criminal cases. I still remember one person coming up to me and saying, look, you're a good guy. We thank you for all that you're doing. But you know, you go home at night, it's safe for you. It's not safe for us. Why don't you come up here and spend a night? And I remember saying, you know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but it didn't seem unreasonable either. I mean, why should a white person be so afraid? I say, well, I've got a little child, et cetera, and I humble fun and I didn't do it. But I've often thought about the fact that I didn't want to do what my clients did every night. And um, uh, it was kind of interesting. Most of my, my Black Panther clients were young, small ones. I represented young lords who were really the Puerto Rican version in those days of the Black Panthers, but they were younger. I did represent 
one person whom I cared about a lot named Abdul Majid. Abdul Majid was the investigator in the legal services office that I was running in the late 70s. I came back for a year when there was a problem. And uh, I liked him. He was nice. We talked. And I got a call from his wife about four years later. He was locked up in jail. Um, um, he had been in a gunfight with two policemen. The policemen were both killed. He was in a white van with another Black Panther he was driving, and no one knew it, but in the back seat was a woman then called Joanne Chesimard. And Joanne Chesimard was being driven by Abdul to JFK airport so she could fly to Cuba. She was being chased for a variety of reasons because of other things, crimes that she had been allegedly committed in, in New Jersey. And she was called the soul of the Black Panthers. There was a sort of an emotional symbolism there. So when he got back, they arrested him. And um, I represented him briefly in Rikers Island and so on. And then Bill Kunstler came along and took over the case. And Abdul and the two guys were tried three times because the trials had to be redone because wow. of mistakes. But he died in prison. And one of the things I've often thought about was there are the moments in history we're all involved in and we all think our moments are important and nobody's going to remember us 10 years later. And these Black Panthers who are either killed young or in jail for 25 years, they're up there saying, you know, I did this, I did that. And the water, the sort of water washes over them. And I kind of wish I could go talk to them. By the way, um, uh, uh, Joanne Chesimard, is, is now known as um, Isada Shakur. Name probably doesn't ring a bell. But um, in that office that I was at, there was a secretary there named, um, um, I kind of forget her name, sure, um, Afini Shakur. And Afini Shakur would bring her five year old son I know into the office sometimes, as other people did. You see where this is going, Jack? Tupac Shakur? Yeah. Yeah. Fini Shakur was, in fact, um, she was one of the Panther 19 accused of blowing up, the planning to blow up the Bronx Botanical Gardens and something else. And their long trial, 10 months trial, the jury acquitted all 19 of all charges. And, but she came out um, four months pregnant in a nine-month trial. And obviously, um, there was a large room where lawyers and defendants would all get together. And court reporters have told me several times later that they call that the room of the Immaculate Conception. And uh, it would appear that Tupac was conceived in the room of the Immaculate Conception. Uh, Feeney, who was the secretary in my office, and uh, who didn't like me very much. I was brought in, I was management, she was not interested. We had nothing in common. So I would love to say she and I were friends and like that, we weren't. And I would love to say I knew who Tupac was, but of course I didn't. And um, I learned all this many years later. Yeah, I remember I remember seeing this in a documentary. Uh, it was, um, 
it was one of Adam Curtis's documentaries that he made, but that focuses pretty heavily on the Panthers and on Tupac and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Char- charting some of that. It's, it's a fascinating story. Um, let's, uh, let's shift into, uh, well, uh, uh what the hell before we get to Guantanamo, I want to hear about the Mayflower mate, uh, Madame. You got to tell okay. us about that story. Yes. Okay. Her name was Sydney Biddle Barrels. I'm still in touch with her. She was quite a classy lady, a very impressive. She was, I'll tell you what the charges against her were. She was accused of running an escort service and her name was Sydney Biddle Barrows. And the Biddle was for uh, the Biddle family who went all the way back, I think probably if not George Washington's, shortly thereafter, they were bankers, secretaries of the treasury, things like that, right up through FDR and other places. And um, so the press decided when they figured that out that they would call Sydney the Mayflower Madam. <laughs> and that was the title used for her book. And they, CBS did a movie about her. And she was a very straightforward person. And um, she um, she had the, the women who worked for her. One, I knew many of them, spoke to them never considered themselves participating in sex for money. Not that there wasn't sex and not that there wasn't money, but it was not that way. She would never let somebody go out on more than once a week. She said, I don't want them to think of themselves as doing that. And she said, I tell them if they don't like the guy, they don't have, they can go home. They'll get, well, they're, they're paid for the evening, not for what they do. In fact, one of them told me, she said, you know, uh, Sometimes you're going out to dinner with some guy who's uh, from Spokane, Washington, and he's explaining in great detail how he cornered the market on shoelace tips. And she said, it's hard to pretend you're interested in shoelace tips. Some things you can fake better than others. (laughs) Um, I'm very fond of Sydney. Um, uh, She was very protective of them. They couldn't prosecute her. Because, and this is where handwriting came in, the only thing they had were her handwriting records that were kept. And we were able to, obviously, we were just getting into this at the time. And they had a hard time. If they couldn't prove the handwriting, the only people who could prove anything would be the young ladies or the men. And Morgenthau, the prosecutor, wanted Sydney to plead. And uh, we said, no, we're not pleading. And uh, he was kind of shocked. He thought that would do it. And she had a couple more established blue blood lawyers call her up and say they could take care of her. And um, she stuck with me. And I said, you know, all they'll possibly do is have you plead guilty. I can get that. And uh, I said, so she said, what's the defense? And I said, well, I'm going to subpoena the 243 lawyers practicing law in Manhattan who used your service and deducted it as a business. <laughs> I had the records. We told Morgenthau that. He said, I've loved this life. You'll ruin their marriages. I said, I don't think so. Um, and eventually, um, the real problem was whether we should go to trial, which still would have been no conviction of any significance, or plead. And that's because there was a movie contract by, I think it's CBS, 
And there was a book contact by Simon and Schuster. Mm-hmm. And here's the thing. Who do you think wants a trial? Simon Movie and Schuster book? and the people making the movies. Right. But which of them wants it more and which doesn't want it? The movie people want it. The people who uh, are going to get dragged in front of, subpoenaed and dragged in front of the court to testify are not going to want it. Absolutely. But you know <laughs> what else? The book publishers didn't want her to testify because if she went to trial, she would tell her whole story. It would oh, be in the right. newspapers. Just writing it down, writing it down. Right. And so many of the details would already have been in the public domain and people were getting ready to write knockoff books about her anyway. So in the end, she pled guilty. Uh, no fine or anything else, no restitution, but she pled guilty to something less than a misdemeanor, and that was it. And we were asked by the press walking out what the sentence was. And we said it was a kiss on the wrist. <laughs> so, Mark, yeah. the war on terror, 9-11 happens. How do you get sucked into representing Guantanamo inmates? How does that come about? Well, I, I, I'm objecting the word sucked into. I had no reluctance to represent them. Um, but getting involved in them, I came about solely because my oldest son talked me into doing it. And I'm really grateful for him for that. It was I was in my early 60s, and it was an exciting project. I needed something. And Joshua <clears throat> said to me, you know, Dad, what do you think about Guantanamo? And I said, I don't think I've thought about Guantanamo much. And he said, do you think they have the right guys there? And I said, probably, you know, as with law enforcement, there are some of the right guys there and there are some of the wrong guys there. And I don't know what their batting average. And he said, well, would grandpa, my father, who was a combat chaplain with General Patton in the Third Army, who basically walked across Germany, and they ended up liberating two different concentration camps, not the death camps, but concentration camps. And um, I said, well, Josh, I think he said, could, could Patton have figured out who the good Germans were from the bad Germans? I said, dad would have thought that there was no chance the third army could have figured out who the good Germans were from the bad Germans. And I said, in fact, all the, the Patton's army wanted to do is find Germans and kill them. And um, they were racing along to do that. They weren't trying to find out good Germans from bad Germans, and they wouldn't have had any training. Then, of course, really everybody caught in Guantanamo was captured by the, in some form, by the American army wandering through Afghanistan. Nobody there speaking the languages, no informants, nobody who knew anything. And somebody would come up and say, Al-Qaeda. And we were giving $5,000 bonuses to people. So they were getting turned in. There were some fathers who didn't like their, how their daughters were being treated by their son, or their spouses, and they got money for that guy. It was a really grotesque kind of thing. And so Josh and I talked about it, and he said, look, isn't that the whole point about Guantanamo? That we should be going down there um, and, and see what's happening. So he got me started, and we did go, and we were assigned two clients, assigned we were given, we're able, they had a few clients, people came who were interested, we were interested, we were given two clients, two Tunisians, which I still believe is the beginning of a great joke, I just don't have a punchline. You know, there were two Tunisians, 
and I can't get to the next part. But anyway, so we had these two Tunisians. Um, they were the people thought they were father and son, so everybody thought it'd be neat for Josh and I to be father and son. They had nothing in common, except they had been in the same prison of darkness in Kabul when they were being tortured. And um, um, but they didn't even tell us that for four years. So we started in, and then we realized they were. We went in thinking they were scary. You know, when you go to Guantanamo at the beginning, they've set all sorts of rules. You know, one, none of the people who you're dealing with, the military people, and they're the only ones, have their real, will give their names. They all have fake names. Um, and they're told that if you let people know your names, when these people get out, Al-Qaeda will find your family and they'll go and hunt them down and rape and murder your wives, your girlfriends, and everything else. And they were, soldiers were all told that. And um, so it didn't create a goodwill between the guards and the detainees. Um, and of course, there was never any evidence of that. Um, and uh, so we're over there going through the various arrangements with them. And they ended up telling us the first time we went in to see our prisoner, they said, we got to tell you something. They're very likely to give you a feces cocktail. And I think Josh says, feces cocktail? What's that? And of course, they had collected piss and feces in a bucket and thrown it on people when they came in. That was so the story went. So lawyers had to be prepared to duck that we were told when we went in. It sounded like a crock of shit, but it nonetheless had a, deter a, a downer quality to it. And we went in there. Never happened to a single lawyer. Ultimately, there were six, 700 lawyers there at various stages. And so, again, but we went in, sat and talked with them. Um, they were not very chatty. They were not very friendly. Um, they didn't think we could help them at all. We, of course, believed we could help them, which they were right and we were wrong. No lawyers ever helped anybody get out of Guantanamo. It was only the State Department that was embarrassed and was getting more and more people out. And you know, I did a study once on who was released from Guantanamo and what happened. And they can only find one person who ever did anything. And that was a Kuwaiti who was released over the objections of the CIA and the military, he was released and he went back and he um, got, I think, a gunfight with a um, Iraqi soldier and was killed. But I, th I thought the the ODNI statistics were like seventeen percent return of that. In fact, like six Americans were killed by seven released detainees. Uh, okay. I don't know when that was. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to challenge some of that. Okay. Uh, first result, I actually testified for the Armed Services Committee, and the question came up, which is, what's happening to these people? And they said, well, they're, they when they get out, they return to the fight. Senator Levin said, would you please give that data to Professor Denbo and Seton Hall? They eventually gave us a press release of 36 people who'd returned to the fight. Seven of them, the act of returning to the fight was their lawyer, had written an editorial page, the New York Times, complaining about how they were innocent and shouldn't have been detained. So they were returning to the fight. And then they went through a variety of other things. And they said three Chechnyans returned to the fight. 
Not a single person in the years that I was looking at ever alleged that they had killed any American. What? Uh, now, can, I'm sorry. Can you? What year was that approximately? Oh, it's probably 2009, 2008. Okay. Yeah, that was much earlier. Yeah, I get. Okay. Because um, um, one of the things I, I'm not saying you're wrong. It's just I stopped looking. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. Such, this is. I'm thinking like yeah. I think it was 2016 when the ODNI, uh, you know, came out with those statistics. By the way, they all. One of their problems is how do they know? You know. First, how do they know the person was ever in Guantanamo? You know, if you kill somebody out in a terrorist attack, were they in Guantanamo or not? Not at all clear that anybody spends the time or the effort even to figure it out and can tell if they'd been there. And the second thing is there's a lot of concerns because they may have done something, but there was no evidence to convict them. There were no trials. There's, it's all determined by the Defense Department, as I knew it. They would report it. And then they would also report people who had returned to the fight and who had been suspected of returning to the fight, a concept I don't even understand, and they can never explain. I think the data, I, you know, when I grew up uh, dealing with the Vietnam War, you know, the, the, the political battle describing the Vietnam War was to avoid saying we lost the war. Mm -hmm. They wanted to say America lost the will to fight. And of course, both can be true. Mm -hmm. But I think that um, um, one of my big concerns was going to be that at some point people were going to write about Guantanamo. And I knew what one segment of the population would say. Guantanamo was a good thing. They caught a lot of bad guys there. After Guantanamo, there were no more attacks in the United States. It succeeded. Yes, justice was slow, but justice was done. That's, the, that's what they wanted. So I spent quite a bit of time trying to study who had been released and who hadn't and what their basis was. I did write a report on that early one on the, the, the New York Times editorial, and they had speeches they'd give places, but they had no actual acts. And of course, the idea that somebody's released from Guantanamo would be hostile to America is perhaps not shocking, except one factor for me that has always been interesting is how angry my clients are not. Because I now still represent two people who are called high value detainees who were brought there in 2006. And they, one of them has been locked up since 2002, actually both of them. And um, so that's 21 years ago. And neither has had a trial. One hasn't even been charged with the crime. And they agree he will never be charged with the crime. He'll stay there till he dies. And guess the one thing he is not that you'd expect he would be? Angry. It's mind-numbing to say that, but if you stop and think about it, think of those instances when people who've been convicted of crimes, spent 25 years in awful crimes, raping little girls or whatever it is, after 25 years in jail, DNA evidence comes out of it, whole and completely exonerated and they're released. And you know, the press is always there, and it, the, the, it's always the same. What are you going to do now? And their line always is, I just want to get on with my life. They, the past is the past. They've had to live it. 
They've endured it. It was an experience too. But the idea of the people who are still there being raging and angry, they're not. Nobody can live with anger for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mark, can and you... I, 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 went in, from a legal viewpoint or from a legal sense of view, because I think a lot of people don't understand like why... Gitmo. Like in World War II, we didn't have a Gitmo. We had prisoner of war camps. You know, we, you know, why Gitmo and why is it so challenging? Why can't we send these people back to their countries or into the U.S. prison system? Like what makes, how did Gitmo come about and what makes it such a challenging puzzle, I guess? Yeah, I think there's two things. One is we have determined that there's a difference between a war of between countries in uniforms, where you catch them and they're prisoners of war, and a war of people who don't have a recognized country, don't have uniforms, think they're fighting for their country, and but nonetheless aren't. So we can't, we don't have a an international arrangement to deal with these sort of free state actors. And that is an interesting problem. It doesn't justify what we're doing but it gets us out of having to treat them as prisoners of war under the Geneva Accords. Um, Getting them to U.S. prisons. First of all, they could get all of them out of Guantanamo in a flash. Look, there's only 39 people. There were 773 people in Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. You know, when you talk about that, 730 of them are out. Nothing bad has happened. Nobody's talking about them. They've all been released. You know, they went back to being shepherds. One of my clients went back to Tunisia, Tunis and was running a used appliance shop when I would call him when he got out, when he was there. Um, another one of my clients was moved ultimately to Kazakhstan and then Mauritania. And I would talk to him and what he's planning to do. He's arranging to get married. He was trying to get back to Tunisia for health care. And he dropped dead of a heart attack two weeks before he got there. Um, you know, the stories here have their sadness. It doesn't, sadness doesn't just end with leaving Guantanamo. Um, but that was, he had a rheumatic heart, so he did have a heart problem. The reason they can't put them in the United States prisons is the U.S. Constitution. People don't realize that the U.S. Constitution covers vis-a-vis American government, every American citizen everywhere in the world. And it covers, applies to anybody in the United States, whether a citizen or not. But it does not apply to non-citizens not in the United States. So one of their reasons Guantanamo exists, and when you were there in, in, in early on, was because the government was trying, had two things. They wanted to show some dramatic success in the global war on terror. So that's why they put them in the orange jumpsuits, shackled their feet and hands, hoods and everything, and brought them in. And so they showed they were capturing really bad people. By the way, every one of those people is out um, um, of the first ones who came in. And um, so they had a system to dramatically show how bad it was the press could get there. The second problem was that they needed a place where the U.S. Constitution didn't apply. If these people were brought to the United States, the Constitution applies. You have to have a speedy trial. Heck, you have to have a trial. You know, they have to produce evidence. 
the rules of evidence apply. Mm -hmm. Now in Guantanamo, the rule is evidence obtained by torture is not excluded necessarily. So if you're going to prosecute them, you have to do it where the Constitution doesn't apply. And if you take them to the U.S. and you're held there for 22 years, somebody's going to have to get you out. You know, there's a guy named Rassam who apparently tried to blow up LAX airport in 1999 and uh, was captured, was convicted, and was had cooperated. And they were going to give him, I think, a 20-year sentence, which was pretty harsh then. Um, um, and uh, he's now been, but because he, he recanted, he said, look, what I said about those other guys was not true. Mm. And he recanted before he was sentenced. Everybody recants after they're sentenced. Mm -hmm. But you only get points for cooperating and sticking with it before you're sentenced. Mm -hmm. This guy took back all the things he said about a variety of people and cases had to be dropped because he wouldn't cooperate. But he's, if he hadn't changed his mind, he'd have been out of jail four years ago. Mm -hmm. Now he's still in Supermax in Colorado. Um, my client was arrested in March 2002. He's now been locked up almost you know, 21 years. Mm -hmm. And he'll never get a trial. If they brought him there, they'd have to let him go. Mm -hmm. So what they were looking for, Guantanamo exists because they tried to find a place nearby, near to the U.S., but not in U.S. territory. And the problem was that in not in U.S. territory, they couldn't find many. And even Guantanamo was a little nerve-wracking for them because it's a perpetual lease, Guantanamo. Mm -hmm. So we own in perpetuity the lease to Guantanamo. And while we don't own the land, it's Cuban soil, we've leased it. And there was a question where the Supreme Court would say, no, the Constitution applies. So it's that kind of constitutional game that's mm -hmm. being played. And why couldn't they just return a lot? There were a lot of these guys that they could not return to their country of origin because for, for what, like 500 of them, they were not, they were Arabs generally they were not afghanis what why couldn't they send them back to their country what I would think it... they did they okay. did send most of them okay um, um obviously the first of the first 200 who were released most of them were afghanis but you could send them back to their country of origin you know you can be send them to any country you want they'll have to take them whether it's Malaysia, if they're Malaysian, or whether it's a Saudi or it's Tunisia or anywhere else, they can do that. The State Department can negotiate that easily. The problem is, for some of them, and this is true of my client that I feel the worst about, whose name's Abu Zubaydah. Mm -hmm. Abu Zubaydah was born in Saudi Arabia of a father who was born in Palestine. Mm -hmm. In Saudi, you can't be a Saudi if you're born in Saudi Arabia. You can only be a Saudi if your father was a Saudi. And his father couldn't be a Saudi because he was really a Palestinian. So his father, in the eyes of Saudi Arabia, say he's a Palestinian because he was born there. And Abu Zubaydah can't be a Saudi because his father isn't. But this is the killer. 
guess what you have to be to be a Palestinian citizen? Born there. So a son of a Palestinian is born in Saudi Arabia and can't be a Saudi, but he isn't a Palestinian because he wasn't born there. Mm-hmm. He has a brother in the United States now. They're trying to deport and they can't send him to a country. Odd, isn't it? All these crazy things. And, uh, you know, he was the first person tortured. And I don't want to repeat myself, but it's painful. Um, um, he, he was the first person waterboarded. Um, he apparently died twice during the waterboarding. They had to revive him. Um, and really terrible, terrible, terrible things to him. And if you were, if he were allowed to talk, he would say, it's so stupid. Because apparently the FBI had been interrogating him from the time he was captured in late March. The way it worked, he was captured in late March. The FBI and the CIA were involved in his capture. The FBI was with him basically through mid-June with the, with the CIA sometimes. Right. And during that time, they interrogated him. They did do modest torture, meaning make him be naked. Um, um, oh, no, more than modest. I'm, I'm, I'm so inured to the horribleness of it. They tortured him. Mm-hmm. but not in the way where you couldn't imagine somebody could resist in various ways. And they got everything out of it. And um, um, in mid-June, the FBI wanted nothing more to do with it. They bailed out. Their hands are bloody and dirty until mid-June. And they bailed out. The South, at that point, he was put in solitary confinement until August 2nd. Mm-hmm. Now think of it, at the time they told the Justice Department why they needed to torture him was because he had knowledge of imminent threats to the United States. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you find, find imminent threats from somebody you hold in isolation and don't talk to? Mm-hmm. Obviously bullshit. And what they were really doing was working out the mechanics of what kinds of torture they could get to be approved. The Department of Justice approved the various techniques waterboarding came a little later um then after the waterboarding was done oh after that was done then they needed somebody to torture and he was the first person captured so even though the cia now admits he was never a member of al-qaeda never and that he ran a training camp but the cia also admits it was the only non-al-qaeda training camp he believed that his mission was to protect people from the, the faithful from being invaded and occupied by the heathen. So he was protecting people, for instance, in Chechnya. He was interested in Bosnia and, and, and Tajikistan. And he was clearly fighting in Afghanistan after the Russians left, but before we invaded against the, the communist-imposed government that the Russians imposed. Mm-hmm. And that was his enemy. And he was fighting them. He never fought civilians. He believed the Quran was opposed to it. There's a debate among those in Camp 7 about that. And none of them will come forward and attack the other ones because they don't want to betray their brothers. But there's a difference on that one. But he, when they made up the reasons, they sent a memo on July 24th 
to the Justice Department saying this guy's the number two Al-Qaeda. They also said in the same memo, memo he was number three. Another time, the same memo, they said he was a senior lieutenant. Another said he was equal to, but not superior to bin Laden. They just made up stuff, put it all in there. And they said that he'd been involved in 9-11, totally untrue. They said that he had been involved with a variety of other people. Um, he was supposedly coordinating terrorist operations around the world. This is a guy who lived in the mountains of Pakistan um, and never left. And he, by the way, he kept 12 years of diaries. They're quite remarkable reading. Um, starting in 1990 until he was captured in 2002. Wow. He was 20. They're available. Now, they were translated by the CIA or the FBI within 10 days of his capture. So there are various problems with it. But the government accepts it as accurate because they use things he put in there in cases against other people. So it's those are... And those have no evidence of anything. And in fact, when it comes to 9-11, 9-11 isn't even mentioned before or on 9-11 or for about 10 days or two weeks after when the rumors were coming out about it and he was describing what people were saying happened. I, I'm curious, though, because, I mean, Zubeda was, like, on the government's radar, like, yeah. in, in the late 90s, early 2000, prior to prior to 9-11 and he did like get rolled up with you know how many ever 15 or whatever 17 other people in a Pakistani safe house I mean are we saying that he's 100% innocent of everything that he was just a like I, I don't know uh, I mean he he came up on their radar for a reason right or he didn't right. no he did clearly and we know the reason I mentioned the, the, I was Sort of anticipating that. Remember, I mentioned the guy Rasam. Right, and Rasam, okay. but Rasam accused Rassam him. Rasam right? is the sole reason he was anybody's radar. Okay, and Rasam was captured in December of 1999. Okay, and he was interrogated extensively, and Rasam was gave testimony against a whole lot of other people in Europe and elsewhere. He was interrogated, he was deposed, and various other things. And throughout his, his period, he spoke and spoke and spoke. And I've been through everything he said. And first of all, the recantation that I told you Rassam did cost him 10 years of his life, included recanting everything that he had said. Uh -huh. Once um, um, Rassam was captured, the FBI put out the equivalent of an all-points bulletin saying you should look for Abu Zubaydah. I think that was sent out on December 29th, 1999. And that turns out based only on Rassam. And he hadn't yet recanted, but Rassam is an unreliable person to begin with, and we'll, I can happily get to that. But, but when Rassam was dealing with that, he was then mentioned... Abu Zubaydah was then mentioned again on that presidential daily briefing on August 6th, in which they said bin Laden is planning to attack America with airplanes. Once again, in one way, it's a wildly significant tip you think people would have paid attention to. On the other hand, I don't even understand what, how many people it would take to figure out how they were going to do it this way and mm -hmm. prevent it. But putting that aside, 
But that even says it's based solely about Abizabeh, it's based solely on the word of one, I think they said unconformed, unconfirmed um, um, source, mm -hmm. which was Rasul. But I see, I get why they wanted to catch Abu Zubaydah. I, it's not, I would, if for no other reason, they'd want his Rolodex. You know, he doesn't have, if you're out there trying to find out what's going on, this guy did know things. Right. He ran in. He knew who people were. He didn't get along with bin Laden. They had, they did not get along. Um, very fiercely in some ways. Bin Laden was mad because his camp called the Kaldan camp, was not an Al-Qaeda camp. All the others were. Bin Laden wanted Abu Zubaydah's camp to be um, 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 under Al-Qaeda. So bin, uh, Abu Zubaydah refused. Bin Laden got the, um, um, uh, I forget which Afghan group, to close the camp. So he lost his camp because he wouldn't cooperate with bin Laden. Uh, <clears throat> so that was part of it. But let me tell you a little bit about the Rassam part, because up until this point, the only reason they have to be interested in Abu Zubaydah, and look, I've posted the evidence they relying on, it's Rassam. And after 9-11, they then went to the UN and said that they should freeze his assets because he was a terrorist, etc. Well, three years ago, I got the UN Security Council to unfreeze his assets because the UN Security Council found that he was not a terrorist in any way. I actually claim that I've got a better batting average in the UN Security Council than the US does. <laughs> They've lost a few. I'm old, I, I'm a thousand percent. But it's kind of amazing that this guy would years later release his assets. And that's important because Poland had to pay him and Lithuania several hundred thousand euros because they allowed the U.S. to torture him in those places. Um, so, but getting to him after the first step, you know, after Rassam and the presidential daily briefing and then 9-11, they were clearly after him. And I don't think anybody would object to that. And they went to the UN, and they didn't have much evidence except for some, they did that. But then they were looking for him, and two things happened. Whatever evidence they had against him ended the day he was captured, mm -hmm. right? There was nothing else he was doing. There was nobody spoke to or anything else. So you're right, who he was captured with is a significant piece of evidence. But the other piece of evidence against him is a video he made after we came in to Afghanistan. And then, as one soldier told me, that sort of soldier talk against the enemy, he was talking about how we'd be protecting the heathen were coming in, the US would brew this day, um, uh, he'd be protecting the faithful, he would join with bin Laden to protect the faithful, do all of this stuff. And he said lots of aggressive, hostile things. He believed he was at war with people invading the his Muslim brotherhood or whatever, however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So um, that's the second piece of evidence they've got. Other than Rassam, it's that piece of evidence. And that was shown. In fact, he has set up his own news service. You guys might like this. It was called the Global News Network because he liked the idea of being GNN. <laughs> 
So he thought CNN might like that. So um, he gave this interview, I forget to whoever it was, and they gave him some money and so forth. Um, but putting that aside and all that was, and by the way, everything we're talking about now happened after the U.S. invaded mm -hmm. Afghanistan, after the U.S. For, armed forces were there, and it really was war and combat. And uh, they may not have been in uniform, but they clearly were the enemy, and they viewed the U.S. as the enemy also. And um, what happened was when he got captured, he was clearly on the run because he knew they were after him, and they did catch him. However, the capture was a little different. First of all, they captured a whole lot of people in a multi, in two countries, I think Afghanistan and Pakistan, multi-city raids in nine houses. Mm -hmm. One of the houses in Faisalabad, I think that's where he was captured, had, they arrested about 18 students, but they were literally worse students going to one of the mosque universities. In his where he was captured, uh, there were several people, maybe six, who ended up in Guantanamo, at least five of which were released very soon thereafter and have been released. Um, and there may be one still there. But um, one of my problems with counting the people he was with is that we arrested them, but we let them go. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I we don't know what they have said. Apparently he arrived. My understanding, this is not from me. I couldn't tell you what he tells me anyway, but it, specifically, she's not from that. He was on the run and was being chased and he knew he was being chased and he went someplace to get into a safe house and either the next day or two, it was raided. And that's how he got caught. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's it. How, how, uh, you know, we're now we're sort of looking at near peer conflicts, you know, Russia, China, where, you know, like in World War Two, your father, like there were there were Germans. They were wearing German uniforms. We go into a place like Afghanistan where we have the Afghans and then we also have Arabs amongst the Afghan culture uh, the, who, you know, we conducted as a war operation. So there's not like a, there, we don't have, a, you know, we got better at it, I think, as the war progressed, but we didn't understand chain of custody. The, the soldiers were not police officers, right? Right. And a lot of the Arabs that were rolled up were rolled up by the warlords like Dostom and, you know, all them. Um, so how does the U.S. address this in the future where we roll up people who we either do or don't have intel on, but obviously the Arabs in Afghanistan were not generally natives to Afghanistan. By definition, right? Right. Um, they spoke Arabic, they weren't Afghanis. Right, but but when we don't have the, like, chain of evidence, we, we don't, you know, we don't have these things. Like, how do we prosecute this in a way that respects civil liberties, but also protects the United States? Well, first of all, remember this. When you respect civil liberties and protect the United States, that doesn't mean you can do both. Everybody always says, I want to protect civil liberties and I want to protect the United States. Well, fuck it. If you want to protect civil liberties, you're going to lose some cases that you might be able to do if you 
took away civil liberties. Um, look, they tortured everybody. You know, I mean, one thing you could start with is telling the CIA not to torture people. One, it's stupid. It doesn't work. It ruins whatever evidence is valid there. It corrupts America and it's counterproductive. And it was just, see, I think every country in America is no exception. When we're scared, we violate ourselves. We don't think clearly, we don't make good judgments and we panic because that's really what the Afghan invasion was. It wasn't thought out. I mean, what were they trying to do? All of Afghan was our enemies. There was a bunch of people in the mountains that they should have gone after. And they basically knew that. But um, so I don't have an answer to how you put those balances together. But I do think when you say civil liberties on one side protect America on the other, it's like a scale, right? right. Civil liberties here protect America here, because that's how it always works out. Haven't in subsequent yeah. years we've captured terrorists like in Libya and also Somalian pirates and brought them to the United States and put them through the U.S. legal system? Well, I, I think that we, we could do that fine if we go do it, if we go do it right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we prosecute people for crimes committed in a variety of places. Our problem is the panic of the, the war and the politics of insisting that they were all evil, ugly people instead of dealing with them as a fairly small group of odd people. And when I grew up in the 60s, we might have said that they were sort of like people who dropped out, drifted off. Um, I went back to Selma once 25 years later, and there's some guy with a white ponytail hanging down saying, yeah, yeah, come the revolution, we're really going to do it. And I said, oh, Jesus. I said, we've, been five, we've missed five revolutions already. Yeah, they but... Keep- but to be it's fair, the, the revolution didn't bring down the Twin Towers either. Like the beatnecker or hippie revolution, you know, like there there was a, a real oh. consequence there, right? Oh, I'm, I'm only saying people exaggerate and make more significant um, some things sometimes. No, the hippies were, they were just sad. And I was a hippie. Uh, I'm in the house of a friend of mine. We were together in the 60s, the late 60s. Yes, they're clearly an, a different group. I think it's, but the problem was, it was also a fairly small group who brought down the Twin Tower. I've spoken to FBI agents. The original Al-Qaeda was never more than 80 people. And the original creation of it, when the Russians were driven out, was about five people. And um, they always had quality control. They didn't want a whole lot of people. Yeah. So we've sometimes confused bin Laden with various rages and wars in Afghanistan. Afghanistan's always got a problem. Yeah. Do we have uh, questions for Mark at all? Uh, Let me see here. Um... Okay. Uh, Mark, uh, what do you think then as uh, you look back? I mean, well, first off, what is the status of your client, Abu uh, Zubaydah? Uh, I can't pronounce his name. Zubaydah, thank you. What, what is his current status? I mean, what, what, is it, what, what does his future look like potentially? Well, he's described as a forever prisoner for whom they can't prosecute. And so there, there's no recourse really to get him out of there. I'd like to think so. I was 64 when I started representing him. I'll be 80 this summer. So um, 
when they and they didn't admit this for a long time one of our great successes is making them admit the fact that they they will never prosecute him and they will never let him out nobody pays attention to that statement by the united states even if they didn't have the recognized torture of it. and by the way the reason they won't let him out is because they were wrong about his torture the senate select committee on intelligence in their report said every single thing that the cia claimed they got from him the fbi had already gotten in the four months before they got nothing from him mark Did you ever I... see the movie the report by with adam driver no, no i i haven't you should see it i mean it's a commercial film but it describes the way the cia tried to break into the senate skiff to find out what they were finding about them. Oh, that's about the RDI network. Yeah, I know I've covered that, uh, you know, in, in some of my journalistic work, but they, they didn't break into the Senate skiff. That, that, that whole story is um, from Dianne Feinstein's uh, Senate yep. staffers uh, who claimed that the CIA hacked into that terminal. Um, yep. What really happened was the staffers found a, they found like a, a link they could click that brought them to a, a part of the Panetta report that had not been cleared for the Senate to see. And so oh. the, when the CIA discovered that they closed the loophole and the Senate staffers went nuts and said that they hacked their computer, Feinstein ran with that. She even went on television and said the CIA should be disbanded, <laughs> which is wild enough. But, uh, but there's a reason why that whole story kind of fizzled out and disappeared. It, it, it's, the, there, there were like the idea that there were CIA people that broke into a Senate skiff like that, that absolutely did not happen. Like that's, well, that's interesting. Cause I've heard that story. And of course I was happy to believe. It. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's definitely a lot, a lot that went on with the Panetta report and there's things that can be argued back and forth, but I, I don't, based on, you know, what my reporting at the time, I, I don't believe that they hacked into the Senate terminal or anything like that. But I wanted to ask you, um, you know, I, I do appreciate all these cases you've worked over the years in holding the government's feet to the fire and making them prove the guilt of some of the people that they were trying to pr prosecute. I was wondering if you could talk a, a little, a, a slight retrospective on your career from the 1965 in Alabama to today and, and working some of these civil rights cases. Um, you have the benefit of, of hindsight and, and having some wisdom from this long experience in law. And I was wondering if you could tell us, you know, any conclusions, any lessons learned, anything that, you know, you think young people out there today need to know? Well, I think the greatest part of my career, the good fortune of my career was law. Um, you know, my wife's a sociologist. I'm, I'm sort of theory and she's a theoretician much more than I am. I think probably my life is mostly step by step by step. This case, you try to win it. You go to the next case. Maybe it's a bigger case. You win some, Jesus, I've lost some. And you keep going up. And I feel like all we are is incrementalists. Mm -hmm. I once asked my law students, and they were sneering at the case, the law in, in 1910, how primitive it was. I said, how do you think we got there? law students in 2110 are going to look at this stuff? Right. And I said, you know, I'm not a great believer in the law as a, as a process of reaching 
um, fundamental change. Because my own view of the law is that it's mostly designed to prevent dueling and to accomplish some things along the way. I tell my students, it's the only profession that can never have better than a 500 betting hand. For every winning lawyer, there's a loser. And it doesn't mean the loser is not as good a lawyer or anything else. So you're starting off in a field where even if you're really good, you can easily lose a lot. And I said, you know, if you also think how many disputes people have in the world, if you imagine it from little kids fighting over blocks, working up to the grade school and the bicycle and who wants time on the swings and who should be the starting catcher in high school. And they're all of those things. You go through all that. And then you realize that as grown up, somebody's really mad about somebody having done something. All of those disputes never get to court to resolve. Hmm. But there's millions and millions of them. But then you get to the cases that do. And I find interesting to think about how many lawsuits there could be. Somebody says, oh, yeah, and I'm going to get a lawyer. Well, they don't usually. But if they do, it's a small number of people who get a lawyer. And usually if one gets a lawyer, the other one says, gee, this isn't worth it. How can we work this out? Or they get, and then they both get lawyers and they can't work it out. And they go to trial. One wins, one loses. The, the loser appeals, you go up all the way. And you get to the very top of all this huge pile of disputes. And you say, I say to my students, okay, how likely is it that when the Supreme Court gets that case, they get it right? And so I think to me, all it is, is you're trying to fight against um, inappropriate, abusive behavior, mm-hmm. whether it's domestic abuse or governmental abuse. Obviously, uh, the governmental abuse, look, the law is really good at trying to limit power people from ex- abusing power. It's not great, but it's really the only place you can go. And if somebody comes with a problem, I, and I can see how I can do it legally, I can help them. Mm-hmm. I may not win, but we can do that. So, I mean, I think law is the purest form of trying to do good, but you better not pretend that you're making society is going to remember the major changes you make. All you're doing is step by step by step. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea of memory of yourself, all we are is little stones being dropped in a pond. And we make a little ripple and it fades out, but there's other stones coming and other people and things happen. And I think uh, lawyers have a lot to be proud of. And uh, even the landlord tenant law, landlord's lawyers, lawyers, maybe I wouldn't admit that. But so, yeah, I think I've dealt with a lot of dramatic things. I don't know that I, being in dramatic areas doesn't make mean I've been more significant in my impact you know family lawyers who keep families together or work things out may be more important but it is true emotionally the abuse of power by the government has to be treated seriously mark thank you so much for spending some time with us tonight and and talking about your career and all these different cases you've worked on and some of these things that continue to go on two quick things oh ohms thank you very much he said cheers and scott cheese thank you Uh, What area of law are you currently practicing? Well, I consider myself to be a, both as an evidence professor and as a trial lawyer, I view myself as dealing with the problems of proof. 
how do you prove things? Mm. And it really, what the real question is, how do you prove it, whether it's a criminal defense case when they're trying to show your client did or didn't do something. Mm. I do unemployment, I do civil employment rights cases. Um, I've certainly dealt with, I've also done ordinary cases, divorces. Uh, um, it's just that those are sort of, a lot of the cases I do are no harder and no better but they're of more interest to people because of the politics of the times. Yeah. I do criminal defense work. It's a part of it, but not a lot of it. Um, and I think I work with my son, Joshua's firm, and he does a great deal of work dealing with banks and preventing home foreclosures. In fact, that's one of the things that I always amuse me. I kept poor tenants in the South Bronx in their apartments longer. He's elevated. He's now keeping people from being evicted from their homes by banks foreclosing on mortgages. So maybe we all, things keep growing and adding up along the way. Mark, uh, where can, uh, if people want to retain your services, your son's services and the law firm, where can they come and find you guys? Well, I think I think I mentioned I'm about to be 80, right? They shouldn't mm -hmm. come in any long-term cases. <laughs> <laughs> um, my son, Joshua, if you just... Joshua Denbo, um, um, look up his name. He does all sorts of work. It's he. He doesn't do it quite as for. He, he charges money, not enough. <laughs> I didn't teach him well enough to be an entrepreneur, but he he will take cases for people who have problems of a variety. Certainly, people dealing with being screwed by banks and finance companies. Mark, okay. thank you. Thank you so much, man. And uh, next week, we're going to have a combat Air Force combat controller on the show. Uh, so we will see all of you on Friday. Mark, again, Mark, thank thanks you for so joining much. Us, we really man. appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. We'll see you guys next Friday. Take care, everyone. Thanks, everybody. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.